hit the button. <clears throat> Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 319. It's recorded live February 16th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Venter. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and it sounds like you are much better than last week, but uh, not 100% yet. Not 100%. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this this uh, miracle elixir I've got, which is a beer, will, will help take care of it. Um, but I, I wouldn't count on it. But I, I'm feeling much better. Uh, not Not better as quick as you would hope but it is slowly getting better it, it would help if i got more than four or five hours of sleep a night but that's that's a whole nother story we're we're route maybe we'll talk about towards the end or after the show but we're we're getting to the end of robot build season so we've got uh bag and tag is on tuesday so putting in a lot of late nights also joining us this week we have kevin ailes how you doing today kevin I'm doing excellent, Darren. I would ask you how you're doing, but uh, I think we got that pretty well covered. I'm just glad you're back with us here. Well, thank you. And also like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite a full chat room tonight. Uh, we have Eric, we have S. Nelson, uh, Scuba Papa, and a few others. Wow. Uh, uh, some faces we haven't seen before, so thank you for coming in. So, Kevin, uh, we have a special guest tonight, so why don't you go ahead and do the introduction? Yes, tonight we are for up to have Yitka Hanakova. She is the owner of Shipwreck Explorers LLC, captain of the Molly 5, award-winning underwater photographer. She's uh, discovered a number of shipwrecks, uh, including the MH Stewart in 2009. Since then, she found the LR Dottie in uh, 300 feet of water in uh, 2010. A little more recently, she found the uh, missing Alice E. Wilds 2015. During the hard water season, she works as a business analyst and systems consultant for local, for, uh, local firms. Welcome, Yitka. Uh, we are very pleased to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, Yitka, you know, you, you've got a very impressive dive resume. Uh, I understand you've, you've been diving for a little while and you own your own business. Could you tell us a little bit about um, you know, how you got, it, got into diving? Absolutely. So I moved here to Milwaukee back in 1999 from North Dakota where I studied at the uh, University of North Dakota. And uh, I moved here for a job. They hired me at a local financial firm. And uh, I was looking for just hobbies at that time to do something after work. And I was partying at a bar when I got to talking to a gentleman who was telling me about this awesome wreck called Prince Willie. No, you got to understand, I didn't know anything about the Great Lakes at that time. And I got interested and he tells me, did you know my one of my relatives actually worked on the ship and the wreck now is down there and you can go dive it? And I said, oh, well, really interesting. I should look into it and, you know, rest is history. <laughs> well, uh, 
looks like you've made quite a lifestyle of it there. You know, I've I've seen you in the news here and there with different wrecks you found. Uh, I know I heard about the uh, you finding the Dottie before I got into diving and uh, got my got my attention there. Of course, the Wilds was was big news last year. Yep. Uh, so, I, but I see you also run your own business. You've got your own dive charter. You, you run a um, Great Lake Ship well Great Lake Shipwreck Explorers. Correct. Um, I'll sh- I will share the links to the uh, to, to their site in the chat room here momentarily. Oh, looks like uh, Eric already has. Eric Roloff already shared the link in the chat room. Um, I'm also seeing in the chat uh, quite a bit of welcomes here. I'm not sure if you can see the the chat room where you're at there, Yitka, but I'm seeing quite a few of them are saying howdy to you. I um, didn't open it actually, so I'm gonna worry about it later. I think. Okay. Okay. Well, um, just a. You know, we we t- we try to monitor the chat room best we can here. We've got a pretty good sized chat tonight, uh, looking like about eleven people on there now. Some of them are regulars, some of them are new faces, but welcome to everyone here. Um, see, as far as your own business there, uh, yeah, I'm curious how, how how you got that rolling there. Uh, tell, tell you about that a little bit. So I was diving, I was really into it. I got my open water, advanced open open water right away. First year I was ice diving in the winter and dry to dive in and just uh, kept getting my certifications and I, I was diving a lot. Uh, I was diving with a local charter boat operator, Jerry Geyer, that charters out of Milwaukee as well. And uh, then I, I got into helping him as a crew. I worked on his boat for a number of years, helping him, helping drive the boat, helping divers in the water. So I really gained a lot of experience doing that. And about 2007, I, I was in a relationship with a guy Bill Prince. He was a really unique character. I'd, I had to say, very, very great technical diver. He was diving around all of the Great Lakes. He owned a boat, and I was helping him as well. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2008, and uh, you know, I, I was heartbroken, and I wanted to continue his legacy, basically. And uh, I took over the boat, bought it from the estate, and started my own business, Shipwreck Explorers. I'm sure he'd be very pleased with that. It's a good way to continue his legacy there. Um, it's always it's important to remember people, you know, that have gone on. But we got to remember the good memories and good stories. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we, we all do pass on eventually, but um, it sounds like you've known quite a few who've made their mark, and you're continuing that mark. And um, you know, We really do appreciate what you do. Uh, it's always good to have new wrecks found and have new, fresh news out there as far as the stories and the, and the work behind it. And, you know, everyone likes to go out and dive these wrecks, but I don't think many realize just how many hours and days. And sometimes it can go well into years it takes looking to find these wrecks. And you've got to be a real trooper to follow yeah. through on this. And, and you've done that on a number of them, and it's been quite impressive what you found. Um, see, I'm kind of wondering now of the the three wrecks i mentioned here the stewart the Dottie, and the wilds uh are the numbers released on any of those three do you know i i'm pretty sure the mh stewart and lr Dottie have been released okay uh, alice wilds not okay okay um and of the two which would you say would be the more entertaining for a diver who's qualified to go to that kind of depth so the um, M.A. Stewart is actually only in 200 feet or four. I know I say only 200, but in comparison to 320, it's a lot shallower. It's not as of an interesting wreck because it's, it's a rabbit steamer and it was burned down. So the top part of it is pretty much gone. And it's only the hull that's in the water. 
The LR Dadi is by far more interesting shipwreck. Unfortunately, at 320 feet of water, it makes it uh, really accessible to just a, a small part portion of the divers. But okay. let me tell you how how we found it. It's an actually really interesting story. And I would say, I can say I found it because it, it was really a team effort. Back in 2009, I was at a scuba show in Minneapolis and Brandon Baylot, he's a very famous uh, local his, marine historian, he approached me and he said, did you know there is a wreck by Milwaukee? And uh, Jerry Geyer actually gave me approximate coordinates. They were the Lauren coordinates at that time. And we, I think we should go see what it is. And he approached me because he knew I was doing at that time these deep dives. And I would be able to get a bunch of divers together and go see what's on the bottom. So it was actually found by fishermen back in the 1990s when fishing was still popular or I should say before the mussels cleaned up the water too much and there was still fishing industry. There were fishermen that caught their nets on the LR Dotty. Well, we didn't know it was LR Dotty at that time. So they ran, they snagged a wreck and they gave those numbers to Jerry Geyer. And Jerry Geyer passed them on to Brandon Baylot. And Brandon Baylot passed them on to me. And then I went and I had to really kind of look for it because it was maybe quarter mile off. So I searched, I ran in circles until I ran into the wreck. And it was, uh, then we went, assembled a team of divers and went down and dove it and actually found the name board LR Dotty. That's not well nice for identification. I know a lot of times on these boats are found, it can really be hard to put a name on them. And when you get the name board, it's quite conclusive. Yeah, it was really lucky in a way because even though there were zebra mus- uh, quagga mussels, I should say that depth, the name board got f- fell over, so it was facing the bottom, and the mussels didn't get a- attached to it because it was in really kind of awkward position, and you could literally see the yellow paint on it. It was just incredible. Wow. Wow. Now, how long had the boat been down there? So, it was actually built, it was one of the later wooden steamers built in 1893. And I say that because after that, they started building more of this steel metal ships. And this was almost 300 foot wooden steamer made of 50 acres of oak wood, very unique ship. And it only sunk five years after it was built. Mm-hmm. In 1898, October 24th, which is one of those really bad October storms. Okay. I've shared a link in the chat room uh, to the LR Dottie off of Shipwreck Explorer's website. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is uh, the link here we have is shipwreckexplorers.com slash shipwreck details. Um, I won't go into all the backslashes there, but you can find information on Shipwreck Explorers about the LR Dottie, including a Really nice picture of it here. Um, you got a picture looking at it from the port side. Uh, looks like she had three masts and a substantial stack. Uh, one of the things you can tell about when a ship is built, if it's built before 1895, then it has masts capable of carrying sail. And this being 1893, clearly those masts were designed to carry sail if necessary. But very cool wreck. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I did have a sail, sail for sure uh, still in case the engines went out and didn't work. But she was built as a triple steam expansion engine. We actually did a lot of um, swim throughs through the engine at 310 feet of water. Swimming inside of an engine room is a little bit um, scary. Yeah, 310 feet of water. That's definitely well beyond uh, 
my ability and most of our listeners, I'm sure. Um, now, were you doing this on a rebreather? Yeah, at that time I was diving the Inspiration Classic. Okay. Mm-hmm. So having a rebreather down there is uh, a little bit, uh, I feel a little bit more safe because I have almost unlimited amount of gas, I'd say. Also, when I swim inside of like the engine room, the bubbles, I don't produce bubbles. So there's like two feet of silt actually inside and um, that can cause a lot of um, bad visibility. But not being able to produce bubbles, then it, it, make, it makes it better for the visibility. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of rebreathers. Um, but Yitka here is an expert. She, you know, you use multiple different different varieties. I think you use the uh, the, the megalodon now, correct? Yeah, that's correct. The, the one okay. from Seattle, mm-hmm, correct? Could you um, kind of give us just a little bit of a breakdown explanation as to uh, how a rebreather works and why you choose to use one of those over open circuit? Yeah, sure. So uh, for those um, listeners that may not know. Um, Rebreathers actually have been much around much longer than open circuit. They used to be used in mines, for example. And the idea of a rebreather is it takes whatever air you breathe out, scrubs the carbon dioxide, and uh, recirculates the rest of it. Because when you breathe out air, you there's 21% of oxygen you take in, but you actually exhale about 16%. So you, you, you don't utilize all of it, but you also produce byproduct, the carbon dioxide. So the rebreather scrubs that carbon dioxide and the machine that circulates the air in the loop adds oxygen as needed. And in order to know how much oxygen you have in the loop, you've got to have some sort of computer device that tells you that. And in order for the computer to know what the oxygen level is, you have to have oxygen sensors in the system. So in, a, in, in essentially, the system is not a very complicated machine. They all are based on the same principle. Okay. Well, that you know, it makes sense, and it's it's much more efficient there. It sounds like than open circuit. So. Yeah. Uh, why did I choose to use a rebreather? I'd say because going deep, three hundred feet of water, it adds a level of safety because you don't have to worry as much about having so much gas with you. Because at three hundred feet, you metabolize the same amount of oxygen as in two hundred feet, as in one hundred feet. Basically, you change the mix diluent for the depth that you are going to, just like on open circuit. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I use a rebreather. The other one is when I go to, let's say, Presquil to dive at the racks, like at 200 feet of water, I can do two dives in one day. And uh, it's nice to know that after the first dive, I can do another second dive just as long and have that amount of gas that I need. So it just makes for easier expedition diving out in the remote areas. Because you're not having to haul a, a compressor or a whole bunch of tanks out there. Um, you basically just have your your, um, your your smaller bottles and a container of, of, of absorb. And you repack yeah. and you're back in the water. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. And especially if people like people that are come there for five days, they can bring one set of doubles and just transfer into the smaller bottles all week long and and. Uh, you have enough gas for the week, you know, instead of using up one set of doubles in one dive. Okay. I have a question for you from the chat room. Mm-hmm. Uh, S. Nelson's asking, how much time would you spend on the wreck uh, with the rebreather at that depth? I perceive, he's referring to the dotty. How much time would you spend on the dotty with the rebreather at that depth? So how much time I would spend on the dotty? It really depended. Uh, I had to kind of gauge it by 
how much decompression I wanted to do. And sometimes it depended on how where the thermocline was and how warm the water was. Uh, so earlier in the season, maybe 20 minutes. Then when the water warmed up, I'd say even 30 minutes. And But I didn't want to stay any longer than that, 30 minutes probably max. So pretty much your limiting factor is just how much decompression you want to go through then. Okay. Yeah, that's Thanks. correct. I'll give you an example too. August usually is the warmest month for water, supposed to be. And I was diving the Alardadis in the middle of August thinking it was going to be warm thermocline, but we had some weird windstorm the few days before, and it actually blew all the warm water into eastern part of Lake Michigan. And the thermocline was down maybe only 30 feet, and below that was 48 degrees. But I already planned a long dive, and then I really froze on the way up. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, you know, it's uh, you know we're pretty familiar with cold water around here. Uh, not sure how many of our listeners do uh, you know ice diving or do dive this time of year, but yeah, the you know I'm sure a lot of our people are, are wetsuit divers too, and that being cold can definitely be a limiting factor. Wow. Well, but still, 20 minutes at 320 feet. Uh, how much decompression time would you approximate you had at that depth? Uh I'd say I think it was at least two hours, something like that. Yeah, two hour, a two hour hang from three twenty. Wow. I Ow. it's uh, it's boring. Mm-hmm. I I don't yeah. like compression personally. Um, I prefer diving at maybe two hundred feet, just because I can stay down forty minutes and still have reasonable decompression. What do you mm-hmm. do to entertain yourself during those uh, long deco hangs? Oh jeez. Well, I have a camera, so I entertain myself by taking pictures of other divers. <laughs> okay. It's always fun. Okay. <clears throat> well, and you've really become like quite the photographer. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of your work online and different calendars and um, quite a few places there. Um, what what got you into photography? And well, I've always actually been a photographer uh, since I was a little kid. My dad let me use his uh, what was it, little night. Uh, an icon, I think. No, Minolta. Minolta, a manual camera, and I was taking black and white pictures when I was 10. So I really always had the, kind of the, the love for the photography. I think, uh, as they say, picture is worth a thousand words, really. And uh, once I started diving, I wanted to capture what I was seeing underwater so I could show it to my friends and my family. And uh, luckily at that time, 2012 is when I got really into photography, about 2012, the camera systems have advanced, and they have come down in price a little bit, so I was able to get the NEX7. It's a very nice little camera, but still full frame. Oh, not full frame. It's a, it's a smaller body, and um, oh, inter, it's got interchangeable lenses. That's what I was going to say. It's, it just takes really nice pictures. Of course, part of it is the photographer, too, that makes the pictures good. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, any tips for our listeners uh, you know, in, in how to... You know, because a lot of us do dabble with with our GoPros or our Encovas yeah. or different things. Do you have any advice for us as how to get, to get better pictures with our equipment? Well, if you have cameras that take raw images, take raw images pictures. Because for about four years, I didn't take raw image pictures just because I didn't understand them. I didn't know how to process them, and I didn't have the software to process them. But then I got Photoshop, and that actually read the raw images, and that's part of the taken pictures is also being able to post-process them and make them look better. Uh, so that's, if I had a chance to take a class with, with Becky Kagan-Shot, she teaches photography 
and she showed me a bunch of tricks and my pictures actually got better after that. So take classes, whether from somebody or online, you know, do the research, learn about it. If if you have only a GoPro, they, they still, GoPros actually know more for taking really good videos. But I think you can take some images as well. But uh, like I said, uh, you would maybe just read some discussion boards and learn from people and their experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, Don Mack, I know you had some questions with her about for her about the photography. Uh, have I covered everything you're looking to know there? Was there anything, anything beyond that, Mac? Well, I was curious on the type of camera and uh, what kind of strobe you used. And do you believe the strobes are an uh, integral part, meaning you really need to have one? So initially, when I got my camera, I actually didn't have any lights whatsoever. I had just the, the camera I'm using is Sony NEX7. They have the higher model now. That's the full frame, which I would love to have. But that means buying another whole housing and brand new camera. So I'm postponing it for now. But that, that is going to be that's a nice piece of equipment. Um, there is uh, so much available light in the Great Lakes that you can actually do quite a lot without any light whatsoever. You can have the diver have a light, diffused light, and shine light on s- some objects, and that adds a little bit of the ambience. Um, I'd say if you're going to start going inside of shipwrecks, then you will need some light, whether it's video lights or strobe lights. I've only used video lights, and my thinking behind using video lights is I can illuminate what I'm going to take a picture of. I can really frame the picture and then take a picture, or I can do videos. I can do both. And that's why I can, that's where I'm seeing advantage of just having floodlights instead of strobes. Strobes, I can see being more advantages like in the Caribbean, where you need to really take a picture of a fish and you don't want to scare the fish with the floodlights before you get a chance to take a picture. Does that make sense? Oh, no. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Okay. I do have one more question now. Why did you, um, why do you like the particular rebreather you're using now? Uh, the Megalodon is just a very solid unit. It's been around quite a while. It's a military quality standard. Leon does a fabulous job. And uh, they have a newer model out now that you can buy. But I got my, I got a used one for $5,000, so it was affordable as well. Uh, there are other good products out there for sure, competing products that uh, that would, uh, people could consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the, the Megalodon seems to be quite highly spoken of. I've talked to quite a few folk who have started with others and, and ended up with the Megalodon. Um, when I, what little I know about them, it sounds like the uh, with all rebreathers, the uh, electronics is the weakest link. Yet the Megalodon seems to have the most reliable le- le- electronics set. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, the electronics used to be the weakest link. Uh, a lot of the rebreathers nowadays have uh, caught up and actually... Um, a lot of them use the shear water as one of their primary computers. That's very common practice now. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say the electronics are the weakest links anymore. Um, I'd say maybe pe- what people when people choose rebreathers, they choose them based on what they like. Some people don't like um, the count lungs in front of them because it's kind of creates a messy front instead of the clean front. So they choose back-mounted rebreathers such as Revo or maybe the JJ. I don't mind that. You know, I can deal with it, so I chose the Megalodon. Okay. Yeah, I know it's it's a very popular unit. Uh, so, so it's kind of pricey. I think that's kind of what scares a lot of people off from jumping into them there, but it seems like a lot, you know, 
many folks who dive rebreathers end up going with one eventually. So, yeah, I have another question, real quick. Sure. Whenever you're doing your charters, how do you determine um, the experience level of the divers you're with? I mean, do you take basically the the professional deep diver, you know, the the guy who's in it really big, or do you take people who don't have quite the same experience? And when you do, how do you determine what to allow them to do or not yeah. to do? Well, first, uh, I check certifications. If uh, we are going to a recreational dive, then I require at least open water. If it's maybe at least, you know, maybe even advanced open water, I recommend, but it depends. And going to the well, open water is fine. If I run trip in Presqu'ile to 200 feet, then I require uh, entry-level trimix usually. Unless, you know, sometimes there are people that have been diving air forever and it's just what they do and sometimes that happens and they got to prove, give me some proof that they can do it like a log. Um, and then, you know, they, and then they are okay to go dive into those depths. Rescue is kind of unique actually because I can, I say the wrecks are at 200 feet, but most of them actually start at maybe 160, 180. That's the top of them. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you credit with the uh, check-in certifications because you were the first person who ever checked my card. Um, you know, all, all the different shops and different folks I've been with, so you were the first one that ever wanted to see my card. So, she, oh, good. She, she does check. She does check your card, folks. So if you show up, make sure you got it with her with you. Don't say it's back at the house or back in the motel. Bring it with, so because she's going to check you. <laughs> you know, and usually, and if I don't know somebody, I actually have them email it to me ahead of time. I just I'm proactive. If mm-hmm. I don't know people, if I know divers, then I don't check anymore because obviously. Uh, repeat customers have proven themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of change the topic a little bit here, but uh, I see you work with kids quite a bit. seems like you're really trying to inspire the next generation of divers. I understand you took a group of uh, Boy Scouts out to see the uh, Christmas tree ship, the Ralph Simmons. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I actually, I feel inspired working with kids just because it's important we pass on our our knowledge, I think, and I'm just doing my due diligence here. But I was uh, approached by a school in Michigan over on your side, the Stockbridge High School students, and they have a robotics program. They built all kinds of robotics. They even, for example, build uh, hands for people that that lost their hands that they could use as prosthetic hands and do things. So it's, it's a really kind of cool program. One of the programs they did, they ha- they built an underwater ROV, and they wanted to do something cool with it. So they contacted me from that school to take them to the Christmas tree shipwreck so the kids could put down their ROV on the wreck and do a little shooting of video of the wreck and then do like a story and presentation about it. And that's exactly what we did. We went there last uh, September over Labor Day weekend and... Uh, the kids had a fantastic time. It was challenging. There were some challenges for sure, because when you build a ROV in a pool in a controlled environment, it works perfectly. But then you get out on the lake where you encounter currents and waves and motion sickness and all the other elements you don't expect. It makes uh, you know, the kids were a little surprised from that. But yeah, at the same time, it was a good experience for them. Good learning experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet you, you, know, you and Darren could talk about ROVs for hours. Uh, um, I'm kind of kind of bummed that Jim couldn't join us this evening because J- Jim Jim Schultz, one of our uh, other co-hosts, 
just built an ROV. He's been kind of playing with that a little bit. But I'm sure that you and Darren could talk ROVs for quite a while. That's one of oh. one of Darren's passions, as I recall. That's nice. That's excellent. Yeah, we we're gonna we, we'll, we'll, there'll be a few shows we won't be able to record next month. Actually, uh, you know, we, Darren does have a couple other obligations to take care of. Uh, we're looking at possibly doing uh, all, some uh, pre-taped episodes, hopefully to fill in the gaps here. But we may miss a couple of episodes next month. But uh, hey, life happens from time to time. Uh, Yika, do you have any more uh, projects in the future coming up? You have like a what? Are, what are you looking to find next? Oh, I have some ideas what to go find next. Uh, you just gotta figure out uh, <laughs> some machine to find it. Uh, on the last project, I had access to side scans on our through Dave Sutton actually, who who has a nice side scan. So we together found the Alice Wilds. That was the one we found in 2014, I believe, okay. correctly. Uh, and that was a true discovery, a true find, because we I actually went to the library. Rick Richter is one of the members of Shipwreck Explorers as well, and he is an archaeologist, and he helps me with research. We went to the library and did a bunch of research, read articles, and based on that, I determined the search pattern, search grid and we got actually really lucky because, uh, well, we didn't find it the first day with the side scan. And for the, those people that uh, don't know what a side scan is, it's like a big torpedo that's pulled behind a sh- ship or boat on a cable, then transmits these acoustic sounds into the sides, so that way we can cover pretty large, like thousand feet um, swath at a time. And the acoustic signals go back and forth. It's almost like a whale, you know, or, or a dolphin that sends their acoustic signals to see if there's something in the water. So that's what a fish does. And whenever it finds something like a ship, the acoustic signal bounces back a little bit sooner. And then through the cable, it translates it into the software, which then depicts it as a picture on a monitor. So it's a, it's a very interesting technology. Mm-hmm. We went down, yeah. we went actually back the next day, and we put a fish in the water, and literally 30 seconds later, I was pointing on the screen going, is, is that a shipwreck? We found it like 30 seconds the next day. 30 seconds to find yeah. a shipwreck. There's got to be some kind of record there. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fast that I thought it was a smudge on the screen. Mm-hmm. But when we came back, it was obviously a shipwreck. Mac, how much time did we put last summer into looking for that plane? A lot more than 30 seconds, wasn't it? Mac, you there? Hello? I can't remember how many uh, week weekdays we did that, looking for that bomber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were out there quite a bit. So. A lot well, more than 30 seconds, I'll tell you that. So. plane is a smaller object, so this is a 150-foot ship we, are, we were looking for, so it's a little bit bigger to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're only at 50 feet of water, too. So we, oh, we, well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But to now, answer I, your question, you know, there's still some ships missing that I think would be worthwhile to go look for. Uh, so, for example, the PM18 is missing. The Chikora, you know, those guys by you won't have been trying to find it. The MSRA organization, um, the Andes, the, the uh, uh, what is there? And if, even by Kenosha, Wisconsin, there is some other ships still missing. There's still yeah, lots. I know over by Kenosha, the people believe the uh, the Alpina. I'll Probably somewhere between yeah. Kenosha and uh, Racine over there someplace. So, and there's a side wheeler. I can't remember the name of it right now, but it's uh, off of Kenosha as well. Pretty big side wheeler. Okay, one that hasn't been found yet. You're saying? Yeah. Okay. I just don't yeah, interesting. Yeah, the, the, the Alpina was last sighted 
off of, well, in, in between Kenosha and Racine on its side, but then a, a, a wreckage from the Alpena came ashore just north of Holland for the next 30 years, pieces of it washed ashore. So, oh. you know, it was last seen on your side of the, of the pond, but then it may actually be on our side of the pond because storms continued to send pieces of it ashore up until 1909. So that'd be a great one to find. It's probably pretty busted up, though. Yeah, if there are so many pieces that's washed up on shore, then it's probably broken in pieces, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that was a heck of a tragedy, though. I mean, that was uh, 1880, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time, it was the largest loss of life on the Great Lakes. Uh, it was, um, you know, it was, a, it was a heck of a story there. There were a lot of lawsuits out of it, and... Um, That'd be, yep. That would be a great one to find. Great one to find. But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of deep water between between us here, so um, kind of hard to side scan that. I was kind of impressed with your side scan equipment. Uh, remember you talking about it uh, about the Dottie at a presentation, I believe, when you were at uh, Mysteries and Histories. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about you were side scanning about. Did I hear you right? At seven miles an hour, that's pretty fast for a side scan. Did, did, did I hear you properly? We were actually for when we were looking for the Alice Wilds, yeah, we were going seven miles an hour. That's correct. Um, that what, can I ask what kind of equipment you're using there? I mean, that's that, that's that's moving pretty good to get good resolution on a side scan. What what are you using for that? So this was a Klein three thousand, I believe, and okay. the way you get it going fast as well, you have to have the right equipment. We had a steel cable, which um, is heavier than like a light uh, light uh, umbilical cable. And it okay. helps stay down that there was a little wing attached to the side scan as well that whenever you start speeding up, the wing counteracts the water and instead of it coming up, it kind of stays at the same level. So that all that helped it to stay down. That way we could speed up and uh, keep that fish at that same depth. Also, okay. you got to remember, we were looking for something pretty big, um, 150 feet long that sticks up. We knew it was probably going to be pretty intact and it was it was sticking up 20 25 feet above the ground okay so you don't have to have the fish really that low at 300 mm-hmm. feet of water you can fly it at maybe 150 feet and still be able to see a shipwreck when it shows up okay okay i mean it barely showed up we actually when we caught it on the image we caught it all the way at the edge of our little surge area so it mm-hmm. kind of looked like a smudge but it's 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 just a miracle that we noticed and we said oh let's go back to it and when we circled back and came over it it, it just popped up just like that mm-hmm. like, it was so obvious it's like yeah that's a wreck and i was like i wasn't even excited because i was like that can be how come how come we found it so soon <laughs> well yeah I'm, i was I'm like sure. confused <laughs> I'm sure you, you had gas and supplies and plans to be out there for, for all day or maybe a day or two if necessary. And yeah, yeah. wow, kind of almost anticlimactic. It was like, well, we, we didn't get to hunt. You know? Yeah, so. hey, there, there it is. Oh, but you know, it was nice because we had a whole day to really get, capture some good images of it, of the shipwreck with a side scan. Okay. And that was fun. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I mean we, we can joke about it being so easy to find, but I'm sure that's actually kind of a relief for you considering how many times you've, you probably spend days and days looking for something, and it, and yeah. it just doesn't up. So um, I think the I'll, I'll... preparation up to it was the longest because four years before that, we met with uh, Brandon Baylot and actually the news channel Fox Six News, and we talked about going to find the shipwreck. That was four years before that, 
And then we had to go and we got the side scan and then we got a board and then we had to modify the board to hold the side scan. And then, you know, it was like always another project every time we looked around. And just four years later to be able to put that fish in the water and go search and find it that quick was really amazing. We actually did take the Fox 6 News with us on the first dive and they filmed it and made a little three-minute uh, movie, well, show, I news clip, I should say, about it. So it was pretty neat. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, for our listeners, uh, I know not, not everyone is in the chat room, of course. We're going to have plenty of folks who will download this podcast. Uh, if you take a look at uh, Yika's website, which is uh, shipwreckexplorers.com, you'll find links on there for a lot of this information. Uh, Eric has been, in the chat room has been sharing links into the chat, uh, different photos and videos. Uh, he does mention that uh, there might be a link or two in the in the video area that's not working properly, but uh, to say much information that you're hearing her discuss, you can see the pictures and the videos, the details of it right there on her website. There, if you like to get a better look at it. So, yeah, Nelson's asking uh, how much does that how much does that equipment cost? Oh, I believe uh, the side scan itself was about sixty thousand dollars. And all the other stuff, the boat, and well, maybe another forty thousand, so hundred thousand investment. Oh, hundred grand, yeah, that's that's a little more, a little more in my bank account. So, all right. oh, too bad. I was going to ask you to buy me another side scan so I can go find some more shipwrecks. Only one. I was going to, I was going to get you two. So, oh, thank you. Know, you. <laughs> yeah, e- eBay's got a Klein uh, two thousand for thirteen thousand. Oh, that's okay. good. A little bit more manageable. Is that the one that runs on paper, or is that uh, computerized? Uh, I think it's hard to tell. That's, uh, it's, it looks that's it. well. That, that's that's the one set up for, for magnetometer setup on it, right? Oh, yeah, that's, I mean it, it's it's set up to enter to, for a magnetometer interface. It doesn't have the magnetometer in it, but it, it can work with the magnetometer. Um, that I've would have to find in some of the steel ships for sure, like PM eighteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, very cool. Very cool. Uh, Yika, is is there anything that um, You'd like to plug any kind of any anyone you want to you want to uh, you know steer to your website or at the end of interviews we always give people a chance to plug something anything you have in mind? Oh well, we have also besides the website Shipwreck Explorers is on Facebook as a group and that's always a fun one to join because uh, I post uh, underwater pictures, above water pictures from trips in the summer and interesting links when I have interesting links. Mm-hmm. And I'd recommend to our, our listeners. Uh, you know, to, to take, take a look at that, uh, she dives a lot of wrecks that uh, most just don't dive, or if they do, that they, they don't post pictures of it. And Yitka and her, her, her crew have skills. They, they post some beautiful, beautiful pictures there. There were some pictures she took with, uh, I think it was with, with Becky Kagan Scott last year of the, uh, oh, the Windy 8. Just oh, yeah. marvelous, beautiful pictures that they post on the, on, on the, on the site. So uh, I would encourage all of our listeners to take a look at those. Uh, I would also also say, you know, don't get scared by all this deep dive talk uh, because we go to recreational works just as much and we support newbie divers just as much as technical uh, seasoned divers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, Yuka does run a charter out of Milwaukee, um, you know, and and she takes mostly uh, recreational divers, I recall, correct? Recreational, usually out of Milwaukee. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. ends up being. Uh, there's uh, technical diving as well, but by the time uh, the war- water warms up, 
enough to go do technical dive and I leave and go up north to like Superior and Lake Huron where mm-hmm. I do the really awesome technical dives with people. And one of the, one of the real advantages you have with, with diving over on Yucca's side of the pond is that they do have better visibility over there. Um, you know, with the way the, the way that the uh, currents will work in, out in Lake Michigan and the wind, you know, it, it blows the warm top water over to us, so it does give us warmer water. But, of course, that warmer water has more particulate in it and not as good a visibility. But that creates a convection current, which ends up pulling up a lot of deep cold water on the earth side of the lake. So I was really impressed driving off of uh, Molly with Yick over there. Um, it was in September, and having 60-foot visibility over on the uh, Prince Willie, um, it was quite I was quite pleased to have that in September, whereas I know diving on this side of the pond, we'd probably have 20-foot visibility at that time of year. So uh, if you do go diving on that side of the pond, make sure you bring a camera because you're going to see some really cool stuff. Also bring your thermals. Water's a lot colder over there. You, you know, We think we have cold water. No, it was 40 degrees at 60 feet in September over there. Um, is, is, is that pretty common for to be that cold over there? It's it varies actually. It can be uh, depends how the winds uh, go because sometimes it can be sixty degrees top to bottom in September and sometimes it's cold. It really depends on on how the water gets distributed. You know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, Mac, Darren, do you have any more questions for? Hello. I, Mac, I don't. You no, I don't really specifically have any question, but I, I remember. You were laying a story about uh, somebody touching her boat. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I guess I could share that story. Um, you know, she really can't slap me over the phone. So, um, <laughs> no, it, it was just a little anecdote. I was talking with uh, Darren about. Um, I think it was last summer when we were. Uh, well, I was diving uh, with a charter. Uh, Sass out of Battle Creek put together a charter to, to uh, dive out of Whitefish Point, and you were up there, and Bob was up there. Um, I think Jim uh, was with you as well. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, um, kind of surprised because I haven't seen a lot of DNR on the big water. But uh, there we were um, out there. Like you were, you were tied to the bow. We were tied to the stern. Mm-hmm. And uh, here, here, here comes the DNR. That's the uh, you know that's the the water patrol in this area. And they come. They came right up to your boat, and uh, you know, I guess you weren't real pleased because from way over on our boat, like 200 feet away, ringing out, clean across the water. Get your hands off my boat! I mean, you weren't real impressed with the DNR coming right up to your boat like that. <laughs> well, um, I wasn't. I actually had a diver in the water still, and I was concerned that they were coming to my boat without uh, actually calling me on the radio or or warning, you know, asking whether I had divers in the water. So I found it quite irresponsible of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. If you've got your dive flag off uh, up, they'll usually but wait for mm-hmm. uh, you to lower it before they approach. That or they could have gotten on the radio and called me and ask. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've heard um, similar stories um, over in the Detroit River area about the uh, Border Patrol approaching dive boats very rapidly and not really taking any heed to the potential of there being divers in the water. 
So, uh, you know, there are different officials that kind of think that that dive flag doesn't apply to them. Um, it does. It applies any, to anybody, even technically to a kayak or a canoeer, but uh, not that we push it that far on them. So I think, I mean, I thought about it later. I should have probably reported it, and I'll probably do it next time if it ever happens again, just so something starts getting done about it. As far as them coming up on your boat so, so rapidly like that? Yeah. Okay. And being unprofessional and uh, risking getting my diver hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you. You were not pleased. Uh, we heard it well across the water there. So, because um, like you know, here in Michigan, we we tend to be a little bit daunted by the DNR. Um, you know, they they have a, a great deal of power, so we, we really try to kind of keep our head low around them. But you no, know, you you were not one bit phased. <laughs> so not, uh, they didn't they didn't scare you a bit. So I think right. I scared them. <laughs> I do have a question. Are, are you going to be at the Our World Underwater or Go Ships this year? I am actually. And if you're going to join us, I'm going to be ta- doing three presentations one on LR Dottie, one on Alice Wilds, and one on the schooners in Preskill. And I'm going to be in Ghost Ships as well, doing a presentation on the on schooners of Preskill. Same one. Okay. So, Very nice. Wonderful. Come see me. I figured you'd do a trifecta and do the uh, shipwreck down here in Ann Arbor. How come you're not down here? Uh, because I think I'm going to be in Czech Republic. I'm uh, fl- flying out on the 13th of March, and uh, I'm actually presenting there at a tech meeting conference as well uh, for Czech uh, Czech divers and and some Ger- well they have Polish and German come there too. Oh, very cool. International very cool. international conference. I'm going to have to speak in Czech. So I have to translate my presentations from English to Czech, and then they are going to translate it back to English. So it should be interesting. <laughs> see what see what gets lost in double translation there. Totally. Good luck. It'll Good be luck fun. With that. Wow, wow. Well, Yitka, it's really been a pleasure having you on here. Um, hope we can talk to you coming back again sometime. Sure. Uh, you know, our our guests in the chat room have been posting quite a few links here. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, the link to your Different links to your website have been shared multiple times here, uh, getting passed around quite a bit. So, uh, but Yika, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Uh, yeah, it, it was fun evening uh, chatting with you guys, and hope we can do it again. Oh, thank you. Well, let's get you on the schedule. We'll definitely do it again. So, thank thanks. You much. All right. Bye bye. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, jump right on into the news. We can get that moving along. Let's see what's the first one up. God, you caught me sleeping. You were not sleeping. You were, you were hacking too much to sleep over there. Yeah, I was you, trying to get. I was trying to move away from the microphone so you can't hear me <laughs> losing a lung. Crap! I'm back in the wrong article. Okay, I can get you going here. Maybe the chat room will steer us in the right way too. Yeah, I've I've got the wrong. We had notes. quite a few people kind of came and went there. They 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 kind of pop in and pop back out. But at one point we had like twelve people in the chat, which is pretty good for us. Yeah, this first this first one is. Uh, uh, it's a warning about porch pirates, which is a term I hadn't heard before, and maybe you being in the, in a particular industry have. Um, uh, this one's from San Antonio. Porch pirates are at it again. They're stealing things from homes on a uh, post place on the city's northwest side. Uh, someone had shared a video with one of the local TV stations that showed two people driving up to a home in a silver Nissan Rogue SUV. Uh, the video showed a woman getting out of the vehicle, walking up the front porch, and stealing a box from the next door. The homeowner said the package contained nearly $400 worth of 
scuba diving gear. If you recognize a woman in a car, you are asked to call police. So that must be something that people have started to do now that we've got into this culture where we're buying more things online is that it's not uncommon to have uh, a lot of valuables sitting on a porch. Yeah, basically you're talking, it sounds like uh, mail theft, you know, or FedEx theft or UPS theft just to be, uh, to share the spotlight. I think that's a federal offense, isn't it, for postal? Yeah, it, it definitely is, no doubt about it. But you got to catch them. Yeah, that doesn't apply to uh, FedEx and UPS, no. does it? Not a, it's not a federal offense. No, no, it's that's no, why. It's thievery. Right, and that's why you see a lot of scams will do next day air letters is because people perceive it as being important or official, but it has none of that uh, U.S. post office uh, protection. Well, the same thing for money orders. If you send something money order, it's different. You send it through the mail, then you've used a mail to defraud, then it's a federal offense. Yes. Hey, Darren, I think we're having some issues with the chat. Um, I'm not able to paste links in the chat. I've been trying to share this link for this uh, article we're discussing here. And I pasted and hit send like three times. Okay, oh, there, there, there it goes. Yeah, that you're you're experiencing the wonderful lag of uh, talk show. So yeah, but uh, that was like a that was like a over five minutes. I posted <laughs> that in quite a while ago. So yeah, <coughs> yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll well we can do it now. We can give an update on the internet thing. You know, uh, us us moving the video. Uh, I've got the antenna that I'm still trying to sell my wife on. But if you've been keeping up with the cell phone things, what, what was making me nervous about investing in this antenna is that technology changes so quick, and we're getting close to the next generation of wireless, which will be getting ah. up to 500 to gigabyte, 500 megs to a gigabyte speed. And uh, what Verizon announced just this week, which I'm currently trying to evaluate, is an unlimited data plan. Because the Verizon wireless is still four to five times quicker than what I'm going to get with that uh, large antenna. So I'm, I'm seeing how feasible it is and how well the service will be. So that's the progress of that. Yeah. Yeah. Eric tells us talk. She's trying to squeeze a size 12 into a size nine. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this next article, and I'm, I'm not quite sure where this is. It's English speaking. Uh, the website is. Uh, it's in I, India. It's Kali's. in India. Oh, so that's an Indian website? So yes, it is. Local protest against scuba diving at uh, Netrani Island. This was on February 12th. Local fishermen today protested a few foreign scuba divers who were in the coastal town as tourists are pretty interested in scuba diving near the island. There reports about 15 foreign tourists were in talks in the local boat agency for scuba diving at the island, and a group of local people came together and blocked their way, demanding the termination of their plans to scuba dive. Local police rushed to the scene and were quick to take over the situation. The local people protested and supported the fishermen as they claimed the fishing boats often roam around the island for fishing, and divers will scare away the fish, resulting in loss for the fishermen. The uh, police dealt with the protest. Uh, protesters and assured them that they're taking the issue to higher authorities and requested protesters respect the tourists and give up the protests for now as will be a bad impression about the nation, after which tourists were, were left to go at scuba diving. Well, you know, this is actually not a, not at this intensity level, but, you know, there is a fair amount of friction between fishermen and scuba divers sometimes. Um, although we, our club, the Mud Club, really does make an effort to uh, get along with the fishermen, but you know, we've seen it where we're, you know, we know the, we know the fish are on the wrecks. The fish know the fish are on the wrecks. We want to see the wreck. They want the fish. 
and we, we both can't be there at the same time. And then the, the marker buoys on the wrecks, you know, will interfere with, with their troll line. And right. then, of course, the hooks which they leave in the marker buoys from the wrecks interfere with our descending and ascending sometimes. So, yeah, there's some friction there, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it, there, there can be. Uh, like you said, I think we're, we try to be pretty respectful on it. And in Michigan, the, the law does not name, name or per, prefer any particular activity over another. It's the, the intent with the bottomlands of uh, the Great Lakes is that they're supposed to be for the use of the citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of comes down to, you know, who's there first. Um, yeah. You know, but the thing is, is that, you know, we're out there diving and then they want to come troll past it, particularly like, you know, the, the Ironsides wreck is a favorite for the fishermen in that area. You know, we have to go out there and clean lines off of uh, the oh, buoys and one. things all the time out there. Yeah, that, so. that one you see a lot of, of lines. And and they know that, you know, the reason they're getting the fish is because that wreck's there. Mm-hmm. Well, and then wasn't there like two years ago, uh wasn't a fatality, but it was a pretty serious injury where uh, father and son were diving the uh, North Shore tug um, up on a Saugatuck. And one of them got fouled in some of that steel fishing line, and uh, the they had a heck of a time cutting them loose. And by the time he got got them cut loose, he was out of air. And I think they both went ran out of air on that one. Um, no one died, but you know, Coast Guard was involved and emergency evacuation. It, it was, that was a pretty bad deal, from what I understand. Yeah, so. I, I I do remember that in, incident. Yeah, that's one that's one of the risk you take. That's why we rec- recommend. Uh, you have a couple forms of cutting lines, uh, you know, a good pair of penny cutters and cut through those steel leaders. Mm-hmm. And, that, and those yeah, fishing yeah, lines yeah. keep getting stronger and stronger all the time. Well, and something we got to watch out for is that, uh, you know, dive knives don't necessarily have the best blades on them. You know, when a manufacturer decides to make a dive knife, they're looking at it, okay, what's going to look good in the, 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 the case at the dive shop, which is going to mean, you know, a really bright, shiny, high stainless knife whereas you know a knife which holds a good edge tends to be you know a little bit darker more, more carbon in, in, in the edge uh problem is the brighter and the prettier the blade the easier it goes dull generally in fact sad to say those high dollar titanium knives don't hold an edge for nothing you can put it you can put a beautiful edge on them they'll cut paper but just cutting the paper will dull it so you know I'd recommend to our listeners do a little bit of homework on what is a good quality stainless steel blade. Also, there are some products out there which do a wonderful job of even cutting through, uh, you know, the uh, the copper and lead core line the fishermen are so fond of using. Uh, you know, sea snips are pretty popular, um, although you should test them out because anything which is going to have a good enough edge to cut through that, that those metal lines it's going to have enough carbon in the material, so it's likely to rust and lose its, and lose its edge over over the years. So you should always be familiar with how sharp your, your uh, cutting tools are. Yeah, and it's a good point on the blade. You want to do some research because stainless steel and stainless steel and stainless steel is not always stainless steel. Uh, I've run yeah, into that so- where you, you get some stainless steel and you get the dive knife and it's in the holster and you don't take it out and dry it and... You pull it out a couple of weeks later, and it's rusted. And you're thinking, "Well, this this isn't supposed to rust. It's stainless." But there's different uh, levels and quality of stainless. So you, well, you, and we're, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say we're, you just we're need to be aware fortunate. of the type you have. Go ahead. And, and we're pretty we're pretty fortunate here in the Great Lakes because you know, being fresh water, we're not dealing with the salt, so our our stuff is is less rust prone than it would be down in down in the Gulf. But it still can be an issue, as you saw with yours. So. 
Yeah. It's never a bad thing to carry a pair of shears with you. That's what I like to have in my BC. You use uh, shears and a knife, or what, 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 what kind of cutting tools do you keep in your, in your rig, Mac? Side cutters. I always take, well, I have my knives, of course, and I kept side cutters, especially if we're going to go on a wreck or when we used to dive to tunnels where you always had downrigger, you always took side cutters with you. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I'm sorry? That, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, especially if you know you're going to, like, on the iron tides, you know you're going to run into it, carry it, you know, carry a set with you. Mm-hmm. Well, this next article we have is out of India. Uh, they're uh, issuing a warning. Uh, it's based on a recent incident that happened in North Bay on February 13th with a tourist and frequent instruction being given to the scuba and snorkeler, snorkeling, including tourist boat operators, time and again, and even conducting meetings with them. They're not following safety measures. They also behave indecently with a tourist, especially female tourist. The South Andaman police are hereby strictly warning all scuba snorkeling and tourist boat operators to take all safety measures for the safety of every tourist and behave properly with the tourists. Any violations or negligence will be viewed seriously and stringent legal action will be taken against the erring scuba instructors and others responsible for which may lead to cancellation of the practice certification license for operation also face serious legal challenges. So it sounds like they uh, are issuing a local warning to their operators that uh, they better behave, do things right. And this is out of out of India. That's out of India. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of wonder what what is the norm over there. They have to have the, the uh, law enforcement involved with making them behave. And then this next one I have it really should be an article of the week, uh, not article of the week. I'm sorry, video of the week. An angry octopus inflates and charges at a scuba diver. A little short video, and a uh, scuba diver had captured footage of the octopus charging and said it seemed hungry and angry at the same time. The octopus was not impressed when I interrupted its morning feeding s- stroll, wrote P.T. Hirschfield of Pink Tank Scuba. Hirschfield regularly shares diving vi- videos on a dive near Melbourne, Australia, on January 31st when she came across the angry octopus. It confronted me repeatedly blowing its body up like a parachute, intimidating me with increasing its size. When I was not deterred, it headed straight for me, trying to knock me out of the way like a bowling ball. Uh, She later wrote she didn't believe the octopus felt threatened, but guessed it was trying to make her go away so it could concentrate on getting food. An interesting video. I've seen that before. Uh, And and I I think other animals will do the same thing if you you start getting in in their way. Well, and you got to wonder, like, maybe there was a, a nest around or young, or maybe they were in the process of, you know, mating or something. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. but a lot it, of it, ads on that clip. Yes, yeah, you got to get through the ads. But uh, if you, if you want to see the octopus, a uh, real, real nice video there. And uh-huh. it's, and, yeah, uh, the, that video. Go ahead. That video is pretty cool, yeah. It is pretty pretty menacing-looking thing. And we are getting to that time of year where things start to show up as the weather patterns change and we start seeing uh, erosion on beaches and, and fronts. Uh, an ancient shipwreck has been exposed by the wind and tide on South Mayo Coast. This is according to the irishtimes.com website. They said continue erosion on the Atlantic seaboard has exposed remains of a shipwreck in the Southwest Mayo coastline. The wreck is clearly visible at low tide and Talonbaum Beach, just north of the Mount of Killary Harbor. Archaeologist Michael Gibbons, who examined the vessel, says there's a classic example of a wreck, but its identity is unknown. It could date from the late medieval period onwards in an area 
replete with shipwrecks, he notes. One of the best-known wrecks in the Killery Ford is a sailing vessel, Gen, or Gem, which was en route from New York to Galway when it foundered on January 18, 1849. Separately, research conducted by Mr. Gibbons further north of the mouth of the Broadhaven Bay suggests that a monastery or late Bronze Age or early Christian fortis, fortress was built on Kid Island, also known as Olean Myon. And they go on and talk about other things that are along the, the front. But uh, I, what attracted me to it was that image there. Uh, at first I thought it was ice, but I think it's just he's, he's standing on sand and the, they've got the uh, bones of the shipwreck sticking out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. I'd like to thank... Uh, all our, our guests who are continuing to hang out. If you like this show and you think it's at least worth a dollar, why not donate to our Patreon account? Go to www.scoopaccess.com. Uh, look around for links. You see a link there to Patreon. Click on over and give us a little bit of money. We would certainly appreciate like to thank it. We've got um, more donors every week, and it, it helps us expand the offerings that we're able to do. I'd also like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another year. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, WRVO has some excellent programs for you. They're, they're continuously running. You can watch them on a variety of platforms. Watch, I said watch, listen. Uh, you can also go to our website there and go down to the bottom of the footer, and then we have links on to the WRVO radio site. Um, and we do love those five-star reviews. That helps us. So if you, you know, if you aren't in a position where you can donate some money, at least let somebody know about the show. Uh, tell them that you listen and, and why you listen, and we'd certainly appreciate that. Well, anybody, uh, let's see, uh, anybody get any diving in this last week? Don't think we got any incense last week. No, I got some flying in, and uh, I did see a really unique item today at the airport where they have just re um, repainted a red tail P-51 Charlie Mustang. I saw, I saw uh, that photo you posted. That's pretty amazing. Yep, uh, they were doing its first test flight today after the repaint job. They did a restoration prior, sent it over here to have it done. It uh, that took ten weeks to do that job. Uh, obviously, took the airplane apart and painted everything. And when this one goes away, it should be leaving next week. Uh, we've got a Corsair coming in, another one of those rare birds. Nice. So uh, they're getting a lot of unique aircraft coming through Benton Harbor Airport. A lot of nice services at the airport. It sounds so, like they a, found a nice little niche there doing uh, that painting. He does a very good job, very good job. But um, it's unique enough that I, I thought I'd mention that because right now we have two Mustangs on, on at the Benton Harbor Airport, and out of the 15 World War II, you know, Mustangs that are left, two of them are sitting right outside, you know, a couple of miles away from us. <laughs> Unbelievable. So ho- hopefully you get a lot of photos. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where – they're not making any more of them. Well, I got a couple, but I also uh, didn't know if you saw some of the pictures. I <laughs> went did uh, some photos of the beach erosion. No, I didn't see the beach yeah, erosion photos. Yeah, that's that's some scary stuff. Uh, it, it's either feast or famine, and I, I posted a couple. Uh, one, if you're one of those people who like to flip houses, I, I posted a picture of one that was ready to lay available for you. Uh, if you're not quick enough, though, it may flip by itself. Uh, it's neighbor is pretty close to the same situation. If they're going to move it, they need to be moving it yesterday. Uh, another section of the coast down there is it, it looks really good, and all of a sudden it's digging out over around this house. Like, I swear, in another couple of years, it's going to be an island. 
So when wow. they're talking about the water levels and how much things are changing, uh, it, it's quite apparent when you get out there and fly around and look a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really surprised they would let that erosion get that bad. I, I would think they would, you know, monitor it a little bit, but they're they're going to lose a a million dollar home right there. There's a couple I did some you know some shots of that. You're right. Why would you build? It? Well, a couple of them are on the beach, and if you look at the high water mark, it's not. 50 feet from their house. And it's like, you should have known not to build it that close on flat land. It's on Tiscornia Beach. You got two well, of them that are maybe 50 feet from the high tide line. And that's like... That it was, you think that it was that close when it was built? Oh, it was. I mean, huh. But if you look at the picture, I've been posting pictures because they then um, put a proposition into the to the county saying, can we build a dike or a dam? And of course said, no. <laughs> but it's like... Uh, they had one group that actually pulled up a house and moved it back a little bit. They were smart ones. Yeah, but it is interesting to fly around and look. Yeah, I saw that uh, in the, in uh, one of the online websites. They were talking about St. Joe's working with the train. CNX Railroad. Yes, because the uh, some of the land next to the train tracks looks like it's getting ready to erode. So they're trying I to took- negotiate with them to let them know that it's happening so they can fix it because the train – company is actually responsible uh, since it's their property right it, it's a simple fix but they don't normally do that i mean that's that's it's an unusual you're gonna have a railroad portion you know erode the coastline and knock your tracks down that's the only section that's near the water in that whole line that they have mm-hmm. so and if you look at the pictures it's pretty obvious all you got to go down there is put up some more seawall to the section that got broke fill it back in and you're going to be fine yeah yeah because it uh I mean, they're running trains, so it seems like it'd be more expensive to let it erode and go away than uh, deal with it after afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Make it not make it not happen. It would be a lot smarter than waiting until it does happen. It seems like we go through these cycles where the lake water gets low, and everybody complains that there's not enough water, and they they got to dredge the rivers, and your boat's slips are too low, and then we go back to the cycle where the water is high or where it's supposed to be, and then we have all this erosion lakefront and they lose their houses. Feast or famine. The way it goes, unfortunately. It is It is cyclical. You know, it, it, it's, it's going to be either everything or nothing, like you said. Well, Kevin, do you have a, a shipwreck of the week? I've got a couple here. I'm having a hard time deciding which one I want to use. Um, actually, I was really impressed with the information we had there on the Dottie. Um kind of reading a little more than that article, and that's a big boat. So, you know, I'm going to say our shipwreck of the week is the LR Dottie. Uh, Yitka recommended that one as being a, a great dive and a lot to see down there. Now, granted, this is uh, deep enough that uh, very few of our listeners are, are going to get there at 320. 320 feet deep, looks like uh, you can reach it at a, at a, no, it's only 300 feet to reach the high point on it there. Um, might be a little bit less than that even because you I don't know if the masts are still standing on it or not. I'm not finding a lot of pictures of it here, though, after the sinking. But the uh, <coughs> I'm going to read this right off of Ship Explorer's website. The LR Dottie sits at 320 feet of water off Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Ship Explorers discovered the shipwreck in 2010 after relocating the original Lorraine coordinates that Jerry Guyver acquired from a local fisherman in 1991 and was able to share with us. The LR Dottie is intact with the steel cabin boilers still intact. Divers can see her rudder with, with water depth marks by it, by it, yaw boat, beautiful bow with anchors, and much more. 
Penetration is also possible, but it's very silty inside. Due to the depth, this is considered advanced expedition diving, and divers need proper training and equipment. Um, I know when this was written up, it was uh, when they just found it. It was, uh, you know, really it's a very sad story. You know, uh, there were no survivors on this boat. Everyone went down with it. Um, it's believed that it was taking on water and started to go down, and eventually the water level rose high enough to extinguish the boilers, and uh, you know, down they went. Um, this was a big boat at 291 feet long. Um, you know, boats go up in, in mass exponentially, but, you know, based upon the length. And, uh, you know, this, this was a big one. You know, uh, it's bigger than the Ironsides we dive around here. This is bigger than the Reward. You know, this is, this is nearly a 300 foot long boat. That's, that's big for a wooden boat. Yeah. But the Dottie was one of six nearly identical sisters, including the steamers William F. Sauber, C.F. Bielman, Tampa, Ioska, and Uganda. She was built of white oak with a hull length of 291 feet and a beam of 41 feet and a depth of 19.8 feet with a capacity of 2,056 gross tons. She had nine deck hatches and was built with a tall foremast on which she could set canvas if necessary. Dottie was built with steel arches embedded in the sides of her hull in in order to provide the additional stability necessary for a wooden hull of her size. Sunk by a storm October 25th of 1898, Cargo was corn, 17 lives lost. I'm getting this information here straight from shipwreckexplorers.com website, and you click on the link for shipwrecks, and you get details for the LR Dottie. I'm looking at a uh, different uh, website, www.ship-wreck.com, and this this article was written by Brendan Ballard, which you uh, mentioned. And the one line that was interesting is it says – the Dottie immediately entered the iron ore and coal trade in 1893 and began making trips from Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin, Marquette, Michigan, and Escanaba, Michigan to Cleveland, Ohio with iron ore. In this capacity, she always towed a 242-foot four-mast schooner barge Olive Jeanette. The pair would carry the coal on the upward, the upbound trip and iron ore and downbound trip. Not carrying iron ore, the pair would carry cargoes of grain to various lake ports. So, could you imagine that you have a 300 foot vessel and then it's towing a 242 foot schooner as a barge? Mm-hmm. That is just a lot of mass that they're moving. That had to have been a uh, something to see. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a. I wonder what the horsepower was on this thing. It had to have some just unbelievably. Huge it, it had a uh, three-cylinder, a triple expansion ed- engine built by Frontier Ironworks of Detroit, Michigan. that generated a thousand horsepower at seventy-four RPM with cylinders of twenty, thirty-two point five, and fifty-five inches each, with forty-two inch strokes. So, uh, you know, the way those triple expansions work is that it's it's using the the diameter change. They engineered it so you. You heat that water up, and then it moves through each of the cylinders, and that's why they're different sizes. So you're trying to get as much energy. Uh, they uh, those type of engine technologies peaked with the quadruple expansion, of which only a few vessels were ever quadruple expansion engines. Uh, I think one example is the uh, uh, Milwaukee Clipper. I believe that's a quadruple expansion engine. Okay. Um, so yeah, a thousand a thousand horsepower. Which you know today, yeah, that's a, that's like two NASCARs. But you think about that; that's a that's a pretty beefy engine. Uh-huh. Uh, then the Quite boilers bad. were were two Scotch boilers of eleven point seven five by twelve foot. So 
I mean, those are those are boilers that are you know the size of a bedroom. There's two of them. Mm-hmm. I think the torque is going to be uh, maybe a little different than the torque on the oh, car certainly. engine. <laughs> certainly, yeah, yeah. Those those numbers don't always translate and mean the same thing. Yeah, but yeah, like I said, this is a wreck which very few of us are going to see. But uh, you know, where else are you going to have boats like this? Um, you know, boats been down there for over a hundred years and uh, very much intact. You know, full, full, full penetration wreck. You know, if this was in salt water, it would have all been eaten up by now. There'd be there'd be nothing left but the cargo, unless it was buried in the mud. But you know, they just don't last in the salt water. And here we are, you know, in cold, deep, fresh water. And according to Yitka, you know, she pulled the name board off of this thing. Well, she didn't pull it off, but she found the name board in the mud next to it. And it still had the paint on it. I mean, that's well-preserved. Yeah. So a good reason to go learn how to be a technical scuba diver so you can go and do a dive on it. I want to go. I can't, but I want to go. Anyone else want to go? Well, I, that's certainly, I'd, I'd put it on my list, but, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a still a few years away for me. I think you're going to need a better dry suit, too, if you got a <laughs> two-and-a-half-hour deco. Well, that uh, I was thinking about Bob with his, his heated undies. That's That seems to be appropriate for what you'd need. I can see you at your staging there. You're going to have a extra battery supplies so you can hook into your suit to have aux power for your heaters. Mm-hmm. You have a little tether coming down from the ship. Yeah. Well, you know, and Yuka was talking about having a, a two-hour deco for a 20-minute dive on that boat. And, I mean, that's a long hang time, especially when the water's that kind of cold. Um, you know, I, I, I know the water's colder over there than it's over here. And, but at that depth, it's got to be, you know, colder than 40 degrees i know that she said it, she was talking about a thermal client it started getting cold there at 30 foot when she dove it it was like already at 48 degrees at, at 30 feet when she dove it but it's got to be sub for less than 40 when you're on that boat so yeah but i mean if you got the gear for it man, that'd be a cool dive though go down there and see and you know to see this to read the story to hear the story from us to hear the story from from uh, ship explorers website Hear the story from Yitka, who researched it and found it. Um, of course, she, you know, she did find a base upon some tips, but hey, she, she's the one that, that that you know she saw it on the graph, and that, that's that, yep. that's one of her finds. You know, and, and that's a hell of a find. A hell of a find. Well, we did have a question on Facebook from uh, one of our our listeners. Let me see if I can pull it up here. On on which Facebook? On uh, the the Scoob Obsessed Facebook page. And Facebook doesn't make it easy to track any of this stuff down. Let me see. I can paraphrase it. uh, Why am I not seeing the message now? Oh, here it is. There's a tab there. Uh, This is from uh, Per Abic. Abic? He says, I hear you guys talking about octos and bailout bottles, but somehow you failed to mention long hoses and primary donate setups. Could you elaborate on why you chose to use octos instead of a long hose system and i'll go ahead and start start on this is that i actually do use a long hose system Uh, i converted to that several years ago where my primary regulator is a long hose and then i have a short hose octo that i have around my neck so in the 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 way it goes and i haven't had it happen to me personally but i understand when somebody runs out of air they don't politely ask you for the octo that you might have attached to your BC. They grab the primary out of your mouth. So that's kind of the thinking of the long hose primary is that if I need to give it to somebody, I've got enough hose where 
uh, there's a little bit of distance between us and it makes it easier for man- for maneuvering. And then if I, for some reason, lost my primary, I've got my octo uh, on a necklace and I know right where that is. I can grab that with either hand very rapidly. Unfortunately, a lot of people who use a long on their uh, primary regulator loop it around their neck so when someone grabs it out of your mouth, uh-huh. it's also <laughs> restricting your breathing a little bit. Yeah. Well, my mine does it kind of I, it kind of loops over my shoulder. So I guess if you pulled it real quick, it would it could be a strangle hazard. But uh, hopefully, I've, well, I've got enough hose there. My my two cents worth on the uh, comment about uh, you know seven foot hose versus an octo. It's like well, you know, actually the seven foot hose is an octo setup, but we don't really dwell upon it too much because that's kind of more of a a technical and cave aspect of diving. Um, it's, it, you know, it's something suited well for, for, for wreck penetration and cave diving, you know, where if you have to donate your octo, then you're not forced to swim side by side with your buddy. They can kind of, you know, fall behind or above a little bit so, you know, you can pass to narrower areas. You know, this, this podcast, we kind of deal more with the recreational part of diving where you're, you're just not really, you know, penetrating far inside of wrecks. Um, we're not really talking much about cave diving, you know, we, we, we touch on it here and there, but you know, we're, we're all just, uh, recreational divers, mostly using just a single tank. Um, I do have a seven foot hose setup, which I put on, on my double setup. Now I used to use it on my singles, but I really found that, you know, for what I'm doing on a single tank, um, I'm not going to do enough of a penetration where I'm really needing to have, a separation with my buddy to get around a narrow passage. I'm just not going to go that deep into a wreck with a single tank. So, right, yeah, and, that, and that's a good point. That's another reason why people use those. Uh, and they're they're all things you have to consider, and they're part of the evolution and development of a of a diver as you go and get more experience and see more situations. You adjust your setup. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just as a recreational diver, we're just not supposed to go that deep into a wreck. You know, we're not supposed to go where you can't. Um, see ambient light coming in from the outside to just see another exit you know you're supposed to be uh you know and so the idea of going around a turn in a passageway that's too narrow for two divers to swim side by side that's just really not going to happen for us we're just we're not going to go there i mean if we're smart you know so okay um kevin you have anything you want to plug well i want to encourage the listeners uh use your local libraries uh thank them profusely when you do they have great material there, and if you want to get you know good original research, you're only going to get that from the library. I uh, also want to encourage listeners to use your local dive shops. We all like to get those good deals online, but those good deals online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. And it's getting to be that time to think about getting your tanks vised and your uh, regulator service. Get ready for the for the uh, spring warm-up. It's coming. How about you, Mac? Do you have anything you want to plug before we get going? Well, nothing really to plug, but we did have a topic for safety if you wanted. Oh, certainly. Oh. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. <laughs> Actually, I put this in the newsletter also, but it's um, it's a um, think about what I'm saying as much as words of advice. Um, and this came from uh, Alert Diver Online. It's called A Culture of Dive Safety. And it is actually pretty interesting. So establishing a culture of dive safety is central to the mission of Diver Alert Network. Such a culture requires collective effort, and Dan intends to promote a discussion 
within the recreational diving community at large to advance safety and improve the diving experience. Now, the mantra of individual responsibilities seems to ignore the very real social context of diving, a sport that is rarely practiced alone. In addition to one's fellow diver, a dive incident may involve training agencies, dive operators, dive resorts, travel agencies, dive shops, medical and scientific organizations, equipment manufacturers, and or the media. Most instances are attributed to, number one, human error, and calls to raise individual awareness of the remedies most often suggested by those concerned with safety. Now, while individual errors are a perennial issue in dive safety, it's also important to consider the role of social contacts in diving accidents and to promote appropriate social interventions, which may be more effective than interventions focusing exclusively on divers. So to promote diver safety, we need to review the current safety culture, or lack thereof, in recreational diving, as well as the role of individual divers and others that constitute you know, the diving community. So what they're asking is for people to participate in this effort and provide your view of what constitutes a culture of dive safety. And then Dan's going to take this conversation information to dive shows, meetings, social media, and their intent here is to also initiate the dialogue in this in the column. So we're looking at this, and here's our questions. So they said, to do so, we invited X number of distinguished individual divers to provide their insights. Number one question was, what does recreational diving culture mean to you? Second question, what are the characteristics of a safety-aware diver? Question number three, what is the role of training agencies in shaping or disseminating a culture of safety? And fourth, how can dive operators contribute to the culture of dive safety? So my question to you and those who are listening, what are your responses to those questions? And then I'd like you to go to the to the site on Alert Diver to check your responses against the experts in the diving field to see how you compare with what they said. And that would be www.alertdiver.com slash culture of dive safety. I think you'll find it interesting. Excellent. Well, thank you for that one. Thank you, Mac. Yeah, I'm going to look at that. And other than that, I think it's about that time. It is about that time. Are you gentlemen ready? I'm sitting down. Okay. Bring it on. The hospital's consulting dietitian was giving a lecture to several community nurses from the Southampton area of Hampshire. The rubbish we put in our stomachs and consume should have killed many of us sitting here years ago. Red meat is terrible. Fizzy drinks attack your stomach lining. Chinese food is loaded with MSG. Vegetables can be disaster because they're fertilizer and pesticides. And none of us realizes long-term damage being done by rotten bacteria in our drinking water. However, there's one food that's incredibly dangerous, and we all have or will eat it at some point in our lives. Now, is there anyone able to tell me what that food is and what causes the most grief and suffering for years after eating it? A 65-year-old nurse sitting near the front row stood up and said, Wedding cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) That's not even a bad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Don't get all choked up about this, Derek. Stop eating the cake. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Stop eating the wedding. He's, 
maybe maybe he's, he's trying to cough up the wedding cake. Is what it is. It's too late. Yeah. It's too late, Darren. Yeah. You already yeah. ate it, man. Yeah, it's too late. Too it all. So. <laughs> well, on that note, go out there and get wet, and stay safe, and have a good time doing it. Recording has been completed. That was a good cast. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. We're at an hour and 35 minutes, so hopefully I can get this down to about hour and fifth, uh, an hour and 20, hour and 25. Well, I'm thinking you want to take all the pauses and things out of it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that went well.